this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talk to Aaron Gustafson about authoring semantic HTML in the context of web applications, where choosing the right element can be a lot more complicated than it seems. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 118. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Wallen, and today it's my pleasure to be speaking with Aaron Gustafson. How's it going, Aaron? It's going great. Thanks for having me. For anyone who is not familiar with you, do you mind just kind of briefly introducing yourself and talking a little bit about what you do? Sure, sure. So I've been working on the web for a really long time at this point. I think I started around 96, um, and I've had just about every role that you could have on a web project from backend engineer and database guy through to UX and product lead and all that sort of stuff. Um, And currently I work as an evangelist for uh, web standards and accessibility and progressive web apps and stuff on the Microsoft Edge team. I've been with uh, the Edge team for about four years, a little over. But prior to that, I ran an agency and did tons of client projects for Fidelity, Microsoft, Vanguard, bunches of folks like that. Um, My wheelhouse especially is uh, concepts like progressive enhancement, which I wrote my book, Adaptive Web Design, about. Um, And I've been doing a lot of front-end stuff for pretty much since 96 with a a lot of focus on JavaScript and HTML and CSS and accessibility and all that fun, all that fun rigmarole. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So the reason I wanted to have you on the show is um, something that I've been kind of trying to level up my game in a little bit lately, which is sort of embarrassing in some ways, but I think it's also kind of like a, a spot that a lot of us are weaker at than maybe we think is just kind of really nailing our use of kind of semantic elements in our markup on, on the web. So I put out uh, sort of a request on on Twitter to see if anyone uh, could point me in the direction of someone who is a real expert in this area. And uh, you were recommended. And it sounds like you're a great person to talk to about this stuff. So just to maybe sort of frame the conversation a little bit, something that I run into a lot when I'm building stuff that uh, has always kind of bugged me in the back of my head. And I always say, you know what, I should I should dive into this and figure out what I should be doing here. But inevitably you just kind of move on because you got more stuff to do and you don't want to get too sidetracked and get down sort of the the yak shaving trail that can be programming sometimes is uh just kind of like getting headings correctly and like in a web application especially so when you're like styling an article or something or kind of marking up an article it seems easy enough you know you got your h1 for like the article title h2s for any like secondary titles maybe there's an h3 nested under a few of those when you're building like Twitter or something like that. It's so much harder to know, um, you know, what elements should I be using for these titles on different parts of the app? Or maybe like the main title is in the middle of the page, but there's like a secondary title that appears earlier on the page. And am I allowed to have that be an H2 and then the thing that comes later in the markup be an H1? Um, And I think um, a lot of us just kind of do our best to do something kind of decent and then move on because we got a lot of other hard stuff to build. Uh, but this is something or you that's do it all as devs, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. So, but this is something that's kind of just been like bugging me in the back of my head for years now. And I thought, you know what, I should, I should really figure this stuff out and get the definitive answer on this. Cause I want to be able to kind of be making decisions with confidence when it comes to this stuff, instead of always worrying them doing things a little bit wrong. So 
I don't know where to even start here, but maybe the first question that I have is, is it okay to have multiple H1s on a page? All right, so um, I'm going to say no as the short answer, but um, I'm, I'm going to dive a little bit into why. Um, so there was this, so, so we've, you know, since the beginning of HTML, we've had these, these various heading levels, right? That we've had H1 through H6. And that was kind of it. That was all we had. And then as we were trying to deal with the, the growth of the web and sort of all of the different things that we have to be concerned about when building, uh, especially content management systems. I mean, think about the fact that you're, you're managing bits of content that are being sucked into different pages. And the same sort of thing happens in, in um, a web application when you're dealing with different uh, objects being pulled in and you don't know sort of where in the hierarchy that's going to fall. Yeah. Um, we realized that it kind of made sense to have um, headings be a little bit easier to wrangle from a developer standpoint. Now, um, taking a step back, so H, H1 through H6, they form what's uh, called a natural document outline. So um, an H1 is supposed to be the most important heading level on the page. And then your H2s all fall naturally below that. So if you think kind of outline style, uh, your H1 would be your, you know, capital uh, or your, your I, right? Like the, the big capitalized I, Roman uh, numeral one. Mm -hmm. um, and then you would have like, a, B, C, like your capital letters as your, your H2s, and then inside of that, the, um, the uh, Arabic numerals, one, two, three, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so that's, that's kind of your, your document outline that's created by, uh, by H1 through H6, with each one nested in. But the problem became, like, just considering, like, a, a blog landing page, just something relatively simple and common, right? Uh, or a news landing page, where you're sucking in articles from a bunch of different places, well, we came up with this idea that, hey, what if we had these sectioning elements like the article element and the section element and so on and so forth that we could drop into these pages um, and maintain that same hierarchy of an H1 being the article title, but now it's in the context of an article on an overall page and that page has its own H1 and maybe we could just magically make the document outline work. Okay. Right? That, was, that was kind of the vision for, for this idea of, of nested heading levels. And so the HTML5 spec said, hey, each of these sectioning elements that, that we're going to define now is going to create a new, uh, a new context for, for heading levels. And whatever level you start at will basically be whatever the appropriate nested level it is within the overall page. Got it. But so it, to, to sort of like pause for a second, you talk, you're mentioning like... Um like sectioning elements, which this is something that I kind of just stumbled upon in my sort of research trying to plan for this episode that I think maybe not a lot of people know about. Do you mind explaining like what a sectioning element is and, you know, why that's different from maybe what we had before HTML5 where we were just kind of using divs and stuff like that? Yeah, so... Um Things have kind of changed. We used to refer to things as block and inline elements, and that was pretty much what you had. If you had a block level element that created a new block visually, right? Mm -hmm. So that'd be like your paragraphs, your divs, and so on and so forth. And then you had an inline element that would be like your bold, your strong, and so on and so forth that were always rendered in line. Um, HTML5 sort of divided things up a little bit more um, so that you have like flow elements, um, which is sort of what the block elements used to be. And then you have phrasing elements, which are what inline elements used to be. So trying to, trying to abstract it a little bit more away from um, these ideas of presentation. Um, 
in, in some ways. I'm not sure if that was the original thought behind it, but that's <laughs> how I kind of I kind of view it. Okay. Um, and sec- sectioning elements, um, they they I believe are part of the flow elements in that they create their own blocks, but they also create a new sectioning context, or at least that was the theory be- behind yeah, what they were trying yeah. to do uh, with heading levels. But the so the the sort of sad reality if if you're somebody who like you know i i did got very excited about sectioning elements and being able to sort of have infinite heading levels because you could have an h1 and then if you had an article after that h1 that one could have an h1 in it and that would naturally become an h2 um because that article would put it in a new context if you had a section within that within another with another h1 in it and so on and so forth you basically could create the document outline but no user agent ever implemented that. And there were some concerns. The, the main reason that there were concerns that this might cause issues for accessibility because there are a ton of people who actually browse the web and, and navigate pages using heading levels because there is this document outline. Um, now, I don't know if the feeling was that this would present a problem and there's research to back it up or not. Like if a user agent were to actually implement the algorithm as it was designed, I don't know that there would actually be a problem there. I don't know that that research has actually been done, but it is what it is. Nobody's implemented it, so it it doesn't exist, which is why having H2s below H1s and H3s below H2s and stuff like that is is so important. Um, Now... You know, you, you say like web apps are more complicated than than um, you know traditional content sites and stuff like that. But I don't know. I, I mean, I feel like in some ways they're they both have equal challenges because let let's say you're the um, the New York Times and you're you're an article page on the New York Times. Okay, so is New York Times like the title of the site? Is that an H one? Yeah. Or is the article <laughs> title an H one? Like which one's the H one? Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and so and you wouldn't want to do the H like an H2 for the New York Times site title because then you're breaking the document outline where you're having an H2 come before an H1 mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. So and, and what, what happens when you do that by the way? Like what what do you like screen readers and stuff do? Do they just see the H2 and think, well I guess this is the first heading on the page. This is most important or is there conflicting sort of behavior? Everyone kind of just does whatever they think makes sense because it's just kind of an undefined sort of state. So I believe what happens, and and somebody who who knows more about this may be able to uh, to correct me if I'm wrong. But if if there is, my understanding is, if there's a hole in the document outline, there will basically be a an empty node inserted within that. So what it would probably create is an empty H1 and then an H2 nested in it, and then the H1 with the actual page title gotcha. and then the, the the stuff on it, which. Could be weird, right? Sure. Um, and this was one of the things that we also ran into, even with the document outline and these sectioning elements, what you would see in a lot of cases is that people would throw up a section, let's say, again, on a news site or something like that, a section for like a certain area of content, and then they would uh, immediately nest within that H1s. So because that sectioning element created its own like nested part of the document outline, then you ended up, if there was no title in there, you ended up with all of these articles that were then nested within that. And so you ended up with this empty, um, empty parent uh, that would be for the, the section that had no heading levels inside of it. And then all of the articles that fell under that. So you would end up with this kind of weird empty space in your document outline uh, where there should have been a title, but there wasn't. Um, so, but all of this is somewhat, 
theoretical because that outline was never actually built into any browsers. Um, so yeah, it's a still kind of a big complicated mess, but I think what, what is really useful to think about is, okay, your H1 is supposed to be the most important uh, thing on the page. So if you're building like actual software on the web as a web app, sure. like Twitter or something like yeah. that, then you know, yeah, the title of the app is probably the H1, right? And then um, you would have H2s probably for the, the different sections of, of, the, of the page. Now, there's a, a concept within ARIA called Landmarks. So ARIA, for those who don't know, is the Accessible Rich Internet Application Spec. And uh, one of the things that it defines is roles for different elements, and they use the, the role attribute. Yeah. Um, there are some roles that are automatically assigned to elements because there's some some um, correlation between the roles and existing HTML5 semantics and, and stuff like that. So let's say you've got a, a body and then inside of that body you have a single um, header element um, and a single footer element, then um, those would be automatically assigned the ARIA roles of banner for the header, which is what, what you want for kind of like your overall site uh, title and, and description, stuff like that. And the footer would become content info, which is the, the role given to sort of meta information about the page or copyright designation, that sort of stuff. Sure. Um, and then the main element, which would you, you would use for like the main content of the site, that one is automatically assigned the role of main, um, which makes sense. Um, but then there are other landmark roles like um, navigation is is one of them um, with the nav element that that automatically gets assigned there. Um, there's a role for search, which doesn't actually have uh, an HTML5 equivalent, um, so you can assign that to the container around your search form. Uh, whatever that might be. Um, and what these landmarks do is they actually provide another mechanism for people who use assistive technology to immediately jump to those sections. They also, the thing that I love about the semantic stuff and, and why I think it's so important that we think about it now is that yes, it's really good for assistive tech as we've traditionally thought of it, screen readers and the like, um, but it's actually really good for assistive tech as in digital assistance. So, you know, with with the semantics like the, the search form in place, um, you could maybe say, go to XYZ store and search for, I don't know, wooden baby toys or something like that. And if that role exists around the search form, your digital assistant could know that, hey, that's the search form and hey, here's this input inside of it. I should drop wooden baby toys in there and hit submit and then mm. return the results. Like that's really frigging cool. Um, and when we use heading levels for like a, a, a homepage on New York Times or something like that, you know, being able to ask your digital assistant like, hey, read me the, the top five headlines from NewYorkTimes.com and it could go to the homepage and pull out what those headlines were and read them to me, right? Like that's, that sort of stuff becomes possible when we use semantic HTML and that stuff would not be possible if everything was a div. Yeah, because you're, you're creating a format that machines can understand instead of something that the human eye has to sort of interpret the hierarchy and everything just based on sort of the visual design. Right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So with the heading stuff, I mean, I think what you said is really interesting about the idea that, um, you know, for an application, maybe the title of the app or something is going to be, um, the H one. And this is something that I started noticing when I was poking around some sites, I started looking at companies that I thought, you know, who's big enough that they probably have a team of people who care about this stuff and getting it right. Mm. 
And Facebook was an example that I was checking out because they tend to do a pretty good job of this sort of thing generally. And it was pretty interesting um, to kind of see what they were doing. So I grabbed some random dev tools document outline plugin so I could try and go to some of these sites and click this little button in the toolbar and see what's sort of the table of contents that it generates for this site. And something that I found pretty insightful that I wouldn't have thought and I didn't expect was that most of these document outlines were made up of headings that were not actually visible anywhere on the page. Like the vast majority of the headings were all um, like screen reader only sort of style, right? Like not displayed anywhere. So like on Facebook, they had an H1 in their little like F logo that was completely hidden. That was serving as sort of the root of the page. And every section had like an H2 as a title, even if it wasn't actually visually there. Um, And that was really a, kind of like a eureka moment for me (laughs) because it made so much sense because typically what I've done in the past is I see something that sort of looks heading ish and I try to figure out, okay, what heading should I assign to this? And a lot of the time those actually aren't headings. They're like, um, labels of some kind, or they're just like bolder sort of introduction text to something like that. Sometimes it's marketing stuff that, you know, the design team wants to make big, but isn't really appropriate as a heading. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious, like, um, what do you think of that approach in, in general? Do you think that's sort of like the right way to be thinking about this stuff, thinking about how do I label the page and in a, in a way that's sort of completely decoupled from what's necessarily visible on the page? Um, I don't, I mean, I, I think there's, it depends on the situation, right? Sure. Like kind of, and everything with a, take every, every approach with a grain of salt and, and kind of see if it's, it's appropriate to, to the thing that you're trying to accomplish. I think any time that we can maintain alignment between what is visually represented to, uh, to people who don't have vision disabilities um, and what is presented to people who do have vision disabilities is a, is a good thing. Um, because there, I mean, I, I think about accessibility, I like to look at examples like the curb cut, for instance, which is you know a, a common feature of well-done cities where they've actually made it easier for people who require some sort of uh, mobility device, like a, a wheelchair or something like that, to to make it around. Um, so curb cuts are great for people in wheelchairs, and that's why they were originally designed. But they're also really useful for people pushing strollers, for people delivering packages, for kids riding their bikes. Like there's a much broader community that benefits from that particular mm-hmm. affordance, right? Sure. Um, so I, I look at it in much the same way, you know, just as we're, we're creating benefits for people who rely on screen readers and other assistive technologies, um, we create the same benefits for people in other scenarios as well. So I think that's what, that's why I like to keep that that like digital assistant in my head because I think that's you know certainly with semantics that's a really good example. Um, I think other things like when we think about contrast, for instance, when we think mm-hmm. about about doing a good level of contrast in our um, designs, yes, that's people who that's helpful for people who have low vision who uh, may have macular degeneration or something like that. Um, but it's also really helpful for people who are on their mobile device in the bright sunlight, especially if they have to turn down the screen brightness because their battery is starting to run out or something like that. So there, you know, there's every, every you know, group that we make the web more accessible to and available to, there's, there's a whole 
kind of enlarging uh, circle around those people um, that end up benefiting from it as well. There, yeah. there was a great piece in the uh, the Microsoft Inclusive Design uh, Toolkit um, where I'm, I'm probably going to misremember the numbers, but basically they, they talked about designing for uh, somebody who, who might only have one of their arms um, or one hand, mm-hmm. right? So somebody who's lost an upper extremity. And I, and I think it was somewhere around maybe 13,000 people in the U.S. a year lose the use of an upper extremity, like permanently lose sure. the use of an upper extremity. Um, so that's a permanent disability, right? Um, now, it's some ungodly number, like 20 million or 16 million or something like that, people that break an upper extremity and lose sure. use of it temporarily. Um, and then you've got another like 2 million people a year that have a newborn that they have to hold, yeah, sure. right? <laughs> who have who have situational um, have a situational disability. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, all taken together, you know, even though that, that initial group um, with the permanent disability is only like 13,000 people a year, um, that, you know, that get added to that group, but um, it's like 21 million people a year or something like that, that, that end that up benefiting. Benefit. Yeah. So if you, if you create something that has larger touch targets um, or, you know, another thing that we end up with in a lot of cases, because you mentioned like the hiding text is you can have sighted people who actually still browse by voice. And so they, in a lot of those, like um, I think uh, dragon uh, does this where you can read out the, the link text and it will follow that link for you. Okay. Um, so if the actual visible text does not match the actual text of that link, Dragon can't click that link for you, yeah. right? So, like, I, I think any way or a- anything that we can do to maintain parity between our quote-unquote accessible experience and our, you know, overall experience is good. And the, the other benefit to that is you don't end up with things getting out of sync because, you know, the, there was a, I'm not going to say who it was, but there was a, a, a partner that I was meeting with that, um, we turned off CSS and JavaScript just to look at the page with nothing on it. Uh, we weren't even doing like document outline or anything like that, but we noticed that the same label for a given product was rendered three different times right after each other. Yeah. Um, which, you know, if you were having the page read to you, that is a horribly jarring experience. For sure. um, and it was because they were actually like trying to make something more accessible, but somehow like, the components that they were working on, somebody made a, made a change that made things get out of sync and basically they ended up replicating the same information, not realizing that they were actually creating, you know, not necessarily more barriers, but just a more frustrating user experience. And the, the whole point of user experience is to make it, to, to remove friction, right? Yeah. Um, we want to make better experiences for our users. So I think it becomes really easy when you are especially on larger teams for things to get out of sync if some stuff is shown and some stuff is hidden. Yeah. Um, so that's that's why I kind of caution against doing mm-hmm. that. Um, but I mean, there are, there are other ways. Like you can do heading levels is is certainly one way to sort of label those sections or those landmarks throughout a document. You can also use the ARIA label uh, attribute on the container. Okay. So on on the search form, um, you know, you could you could have the uh, the form itself have a, a label on it or something like that's aria label, you know, search form or something like that. And how does that translate? I guess in terms of if you're contrasting that with like a 
an approach where you're using headings you're using like an aria label is there still like an element of like hierarchy to that like this is like a secondary label or no it would just be the that would be presented as the accessible name of of the element so if if you were to bring focus to that landmark let's so let's say you've got a div around your search form or a list item around your search form or something like that and you have an aria label on it and you have a role of search Mm-hmm. When focus is brought to that containing element, the aria label could be read out. Got it. Because that is the the um, accessible name of that particular element. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is DigitalOcean. So DigitalOcean is a simple, developer-friendly cloud platform optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. Uh, I've personally been a customer of DigitalOcean for about five years, and I use them to host all of my server-side projects, like my custom course platform, for example, which is built with Laravel. A lot of the guests that I've had on the show in the past are DigitalOcean customers as well. Uh, For example, Taylor Otwell, the creator of Laravel, he uses DigitalOcean to host all of his products like Envoyer and Laravel Forge, and Jeffrey Way actually uses DigitalOcean to host Laracast as well. Uh, One of DigitalOcean's newest features that I'm personally really excited about is managed databases, uh, which lets you spin up a completely managed database server so you don't have to worry about anything like backups, uh, managing read-only replicas, or just general server maintenance. Now, DigitalOcean is already an extremely affordable service. You can spin up a server for as little as $5 a month, but they've been kind enough to offer a free $50 credit to Full Stack Radio listeners. So head over to do.co slash full stack, all one word, to claim your $50 credit. And thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. Back to the show. So um, something that you sort of touched on, uh, alluded to at least, that I think is like an interesting thing to talk about more is sort of the challenges of getting this stuff right when you are sort of creating partial content that's going to be included somewhere else and you don't necessarily know the context of it. Like if I'm writing an article in Markdown and I use an H1 for the Markdown you know, document title and then I'm including that on my blog where the blog has its own title, all of a sudden the headings are all sort of offset by one or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. How have you tackled that sort of problem in the past? So one of the ways that I've managed that is to, you know, be aware of how content is being used and sort of putting in place the necessary guardrails to to try and make sure things get rendered the way that they're supposed to. So if, for instance, like in in your case, you're talking about a blog post that, that may show up in two ways. So it shows up in your actual blog post page, like that, that, that post's own page, and it shows up fully formed also on your homepage. So you're mm-hmm. not doing teasers, you're doing full articles sure. there. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I would probably have some sort of um, plugin for the rendering of that into the homepage that takes care of the translation of the heading levels. Um, bumping them down a level if that was what was necessary or two levels, whatever it is, and sort of abstract that away from the actual content itself. So the content can stand on its own with the appropriate heading levels that it needs in the main context that it's going to appear and how how people are going to be linking to it or, or probably going to be reading it in most instances, right? Because they'll, they'll get to it via a social share or they'll get to it via a... a, a 
search or something like that, right? So they'll end up on the content page, hopefully, instead of the, the landing page for your blog. Um, so you, you deal with the adjustments only for that other context. Um, always defaulting to making the, the sort of first run experience the appropriate one and how you're, how you're marking things up. Um, so that way, if you later on decided to only publish excerpts on the homepage, then you can throw away that code because you no longer use it and you don't have to go back and rewrite all your blog posts totally. to change heading levels or yeah. something. Um, I think that makes it much easier uh, to do and it's, it's pretty inconsequential to you know, parse a document and, and adjust tags one way or another. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I think that's a, that makes a lot of sense as a solution. And um, one thing that I think is really interesting about it is I just feel like that's probably not something a lot of people think about. But in reality, if, if you really want to get this stuff right and you're working in, say, like some sort of component-driven environment, say you're building like something with React or something, and there's all these components that could be used in any different place, it's almost like really anything that uses heading elements inside of it needs to be needs to accept like a parameter from the outside world that's like, where am I starting? So I know like yeah. um, what I should do. And yeah. it's, uh, it's interesting because I, I feel like I don't really see people doing that on the sorts of projects that I get involved in. And um, it seems like a, like a really you know, logical thing to be doing. It's, it's pretty interesting. I think it's one of those things that you know, we, as a, an industry, are a bit of a monoculture. Um, in terms of the the types of people that are building our products, and until we have more diverse teams with more diverse lived experiences and diverse perspectives to bring to bring to bear on the the products that we're building, um, we'll struggle with that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, there was a, a great piece we published in a list apart a couple months ago that was um, all about sort of design considerations for folks with vestibular disorders. Um, and so the, these are, are people who could have problems with, um, let's say, an, animation like motion and stuff like that mm-hmm. on the screen can, can make them nauseous and, and such, um, or make them pass out even, uh, depending on the severity. But um, they didn't really understand that until they actually developed a vestibular disorder themselves, right? Um, same sort of thing could be could be said for, like, you don't really understand, you know, a lot of people didn't really understand the implications of designing for mobile until we all had a, a really good sure. browser in our pocket, yeah. right? And we had to, to all of a sudden reckon with these tiny links that we were expected to click that were right next to each other. Um, you know, so we learn as our experience broadens and we learn faster by creating more diverse teams and, and by really encouraging our employers to to embrace more diversity within our, our ranks. Because if, we, if we're surrounded by people who are like us, we're only going to design for people like us. And yeah. um, then we exclude a bunch of people who aren't like us, yeah. right? Um, so I think that's, that's one of the things where it really, like user testing is great, but... User testing in a lot of cases is done sort of after things have been built and then getting buy-in to actually fix it. Like if you if you build things with accessibility in mind, with inclusive design in mind, all of these these sorts of things from the beginning, you know, yes, things may take slightly longer, but really not that much longer. And your product is better and you don't end up having to go back and gut things because your assumptions turned out to be totally incorrect. Yeah. 
For sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think it's definitely inherently sort of difficult to care about a problem until it's affecting you. You know what I mean? No matter how much empathy we try to have for yeah. people. Or someone so, we know, right? Yeah, like, totally. Yeah. yeah, makes a lot of sense. Um, so I guess like getting into some of these other topics, um, we talked a little bit about the, kind of the document outline and headings and stuff, and that's feels pretty good. I feel better about that stuff than I did before. Um, I think another area where people sort of, uh, don't feel super confident that they're doing things necessarily the right way is just using a lot of these, you know, I guess they're not really new anymore, but uh, HTML five sort of semantic elements correctly. You know, um, I think a lot of us maybe use some of these elements like section or aside or whatever. Um, just when it sort of like intuitively feels like, well, yeah, I would call this a section, but I think, a lot of people don't realize that a lot of these things have very concrete definitions about like when you're allowed to use this and what it actually means to use something like this. Um, and this is something that I don't, I'm not an expert in. So I thought it'd be great to, to learn more about like, when should you use a section, uh, versus a div versus whatever else, you know, when can you use an, an aside, you know, a lot of people use an aside because there's like a sidebar and aside and sidebar both have the word side in it. You know what I mean? That's almost like the justification. So yeah, I'd be curious to know, um, uh, from you, like what are a lot of these things for? When should you use them? When do people use them where they shouldn't be? You know, anything that can sort of help people do a better job, um, making use of this technology. Yeah. Um, so there's actually a really, I mean, it's like you said, some of this stuff is, is fairly old at this point, but um, there's a really great HTML5 element flowchart from the folks at HTML5 Doctor. Awesome. Um, and I'll, I'll send you the link to, cool. to share with your audience, but it actually starts with, okay, you've got this block of flow content and it's not inline or phrasing content. So the, the first question they ask is, is it a major navigation block? If it is, then use the nav element. Right, um, which is a sectioning content element. So that's that's one of the types of sectioning elements. Um, if it isn't a navigation block, does it make sense on its own? In other words, if you were to extract it from the page and just look at that thing unto itself, does it like can it stand on its own? Um, so in in your instance of you're you're bubbling up a blog post to your homepage, yeah. that would make sense on its own, right? So that's an article. Okay, and an article so, is so a, yeah. Before we go further, I think this this is an interesting one to dive into because I think it's um good to maybe throw some more practical examples out there and see sure. what you think. So say you're on like Twitter and you're looking at a tweet in your timeline. A tweet I feel like could stand on its own. Mm-hmm. So would every single tweet in the timeline be an article? So is there a you justification can actually, for that? You can nest these things. Okay. <laughs> you can nest these things. Um, I so you know you you would probably have an article if something were a tweet thread. That thread might be an article since Twitter has the the idea of threading mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Um, you could have. Um, let's say you were looking at a tweet with responses as well as a thread, you know, the, the thread itself could be an article and then maybe the responses to it are like a section within that article. Um, sort of depends on like you, you get really like deep in this and Mm -hmm. and trying to figure it out, but this stuff can be nested. Um, so it's kind of about looking on a, on a case by case basis. It's tough when you're doing dealing with user generated content. Like that's, that's probably one of the things that are is hardest to deal with in most scenarios, whether yeah. it's from a semantic point of view or from a design point of view. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, 
kind of thinking thinking generally about things, if you're dealing with replies, you know, especially a reply to a specific um, a specific tweet, I think that probably makes sense only in the context of the tweet that it's replying to. Yeah, right? I would I would I would wager that right. Um, so in that case, I would probably make that a subsection of the overall article that the the main tweet or the original tweet thread was part of. Got if it. That makes sense. So say um, you were um, say you were looking at like like Airbnb, and there's like a list of a bunch of like featured rental properties or something. Mm-hmm. Each one of those like little cards with like sort of the information about the rental yeah. could be looked at independently and probably makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't really feel like it doesn't really feel like it's an article per se in terms of like what your mental sort of like, well, to me, an article is a bunch of words with headings and stuff like that or whatever. Right. Would that right. still be like an article? So um, Jeremy Keith, I think was the one who, who started talking about articles in this way. Like he, he likes to think of articles, not so much as articles in a publication sense, but articles in like we refer to what we wear as articles of clothing. Sure. Um, so each one can stand on its own, right? Like yep. it is, it is a shirt. Uh-huh. It, it, it is a pair of, a pair of pants, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and I think you would technically refer to each of your socks individually as an article of clothing. Um, so <laughs> like, yeah, um, taken in aggregate, but there are some people who, who wear mismatching socks on purpose. Sure. Um, yeah, so, so, um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's been useful to me to kind of think of it that way as well. Um, so if it could stand on its own, I would say an Airbnb instance, um, that that's a good, a good example of, uh, of cool. things that would be an article. Is there a risk to having like too many articles on one page? You know what I mean? Not that I'm aware of, especially since the, the sectioning, like the HTML5 document outline doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, there's, there's not really a, a risk to it at this point. It's not going um, to confuse screen readers or anything by just being overwhelmed with like, you know, it doesn't communicate like some level of importance where people traditionally expect there's maybe one on a page. You know what I mean? No, not, not in that same way. Cool. Um, main would be an, an instance of something that, that should only exist once per page. Although there's a whole, uh, there's a whole kerfuffle on, on GitHub discussing multiple main elements. <laughs> and I'm just like, okay, main is supposed to be main. There like can the only main, be one you know, main. <laughs> yeah, there can only be one main. I mean, yes, there are some people who go to a restaurant and order multiple mains for themselves, but like not really often. <laughs> um, that doesn't change the fact one, that each one of those meals was it, intended yeah. to be a main meal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, that's a whole other whole other thing. But anyway, so, so does that article make a little bit more sense? Yeah, totally. Okay, okay. So if it's not an article, so it doesn't make sense on its own, on its own, is it required to understand the current content? If it's not required to understand the current content, then that's something that would be uh, an aside. So it's something that's like complementary. Sure. Right? Complementary is actually the the aria. Um, well, there's there's two aria roles that are kind of related to aside, complementary and note. Um, but uh, complementary is, is probably the closest. Um, so you know sidebars. Um, some people would say like a comment section. So maybe your at replies could be in an aside instead of a section. Okay. Um, you know, a glossary or footnotes, those sorts of things make sense in an aside because they, they um, are not required to understand the content, but they're related to it 
somewhat tangentially and if they were just on their own it would just kind of be like why are you typing this they don't why is this here (laughs) right yeah exactly um okay so if it is required to understand the current uh content then would it make sense or, or would it would it still be understandable if you were to move it to an appendix okay Okay. If that's the case, then a figure actually makes sense. And a figure, like we often think of figure being for like image and caption, but figure could be for tables, charts, like all sorts of things. Basically, I like to think of it as, as reference content within an article. Um, anything that you might want to, you know, consider linking to from the content around it. So like, as you see in this diagram or as you see in this chart of data, you would want to link that to a chart of data that could exist in an appendix, or, but it could be in this page, then a figure makes sense. Okay. And, and I uh, try to make it a strong habit to always put a ID attribute uh, or an ID attribute on a figure element um, because it's supposed to be referenceable content. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Um, so that way I always have the option, even if I'm choosing not to link to it in the current page, I can always link to it or somebody else could link to it from another document. Got it. So quick question I have before we move on, um, just to clarify. So we talked about like asides as like supporting mm-hmm. content. Um, if you're creating an aside that's meant to be like supporting content for an article, should that aside be nested inside that article or be like a sibling of the article? Oh gosh, you know, I, I think there is some discussion around this as well. Um, I typically would nest it inside of the article because it is part of the article. Now, some there may be some people who who disagree with that, and I'll I'll look up and see if I can provide a, a yeah. better link for for content cool. around, for context around that. Um, my inclination is to nest it inside of the article, but I want to say I read something recently that said that that's <laughs> sure. probably not the best practice. So, yeah, um, that, that's yeah. what sounds intuitive to me too, because I can't think of any other way that y- they would be linked. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, how is it in the side for this article and not for something else that it's next to or whatever? Exactly. But uh, yeah, I'd be interested to see what other people have to say about that for sure. Yeah, I'll I'll look for some uh, some some information on that. To, uh, cool. Um, so yeah, any other questions on that one or figure? No, I think we're good okay. there. Yeah. So what's next? All right. So the next one would be. Uh, so in this case, it's not something that should move to an appendix. Um, is it logical to add a heading at this point to to kind of um, to connote a, a, a sub bit of content, right? Okay. Um, so in this case, a section would make sense. So it's a section of a page or maybe a chapter of an article with its own heading, that sort of thing. So in this case, are we still talking about stuff that's going inside of like an article tag or at least potentially inside of an article tag? Potentially inside of an article tag or inside of a main element. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, so in the case of like your actual blog post page, mm-hmm. your your content could exist inside of a main element and really wouldn't need to exist inside of an article inside of a main element. Sure. If that makes sense. Because it's like um, the only it is the main primary content, content on right, the page. Right. Exactly. But in something like um, Twitter, there's not really like a primary tweet necessarily. Yeah. I mean, you could, if you were again, looking at a threaded tweet or something like that, um, you could have like the overall, I can try to think like the Twitter timeline is so 
just chaotic <laughs> from a markup standpoint. Um, but if you were to have like in the context of your main Twitter timeline, sometimes it shows like a portion of a thread. I could see that existing as a an article within your overall Twitter timeline of, of all articles of tweets. Um, but that grouping article maybe contains sections for the uh, the the threaded tweets that came after that initial one. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Twitter's a definitely a yeah. It's a really kind of complicated a complex thing. example for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. And I know they struggle with that with that as yeah, well, trying I to figure out all this stuff. Um, so yeah, if it if it makes sense to add a a heading, <coughs> excuse me, a heading for a subsection and stuff like that, that's really where the section element shines. Um, and you can like it's of course complicated by the fact that you can nest all of all of these things. Mm-hmm. So sections within articles, articles within sections, and so on and so forth. Would you ever um, have like a section as like a top level item as like a sibling to a main element, or should it always be within like a main or a header or a footer? My gut says no, that you wouldn't have it as a sibling to main. Um, I would probably have header, main, footer. That's that's my usual like structure for a kind of like the triple threat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then within the main is where I would do my, my sectioning or my articles and, and so on and so forth. Gotcha. Um, so like within a web app context, palettes and stuff like that probably make sense as sections. Um you know, wherever your tools are and, and things like that. Yep. Certain ones are, are going to be more navigational um, and some will be more uh, of like a section. Um, so anyway, if, it, if, it's not a, if it's not something that it would make sense to add a heading, then the fallback is like, does it have any semantic meaning at all? Um, so if it's a paragraph or a block quote or it's... Um, you know, pretext, which would be for, for something like uh, code or, or something like that, um, then use the appropriate thing. Now, I would say that, like, in some cases, I would argue that if you're doing code samples and such, those probably could be within a figure, yeah. like pre within a figure, because you're going to be potentially referencing those from elsewhere in your content. Sure. Yeah. It almost feels like the pre code kind of combination that we do. A yeah. lot of the time is kind yeah. of like the equivalent of like the B versus strong comparison, maybe where <laughs> one is, uh, yeah, this is code. So we're labeling it as code and it's pre-formatted. Yeah. So it's a pre, but yeah. really if it's like something that's meant to be like an example that you're referencing, um, it's a lot of time it's, it's being used in the same way that an image would be used, um, to sort of yep. demonstrate something in an article. Yeah. So yeah, that seems like to, an, to illustrate content. So yeah, I think in that case, you know, you, you might want to put it in a figure or at least put an ID on the pre <laughs> so that you can, can jump somebody down to that content. Um, and then if it doesn't have any semantic meaning whatsoever, if you're, you know, in a lot of cases you're doing this for, CSS hooks, right? Sure. To, to be able to create some sort of visual segmentation of content, then div makes a lot of sense. Um, I still go back occasionally, and like if I turn off CSS, and I don't necessarily need to turn off JavaScript, but if I turn off CSS and I look at the page, um, sometimes I'll still see places that I'm like, you know what, I kind of want to put a horizontal rule in there too to add like a little bit of extra disambiguation and, and maybe I'll visually hide that horizontal rule, but it's, it's useful for me in terms of breaking things up. Mm-hmm. If, you know, God forbid something was to happen to my CSS and it didn't get downloaded or something like that. I want to make sure that the page is still, still looks good uh, with no, with just default styles with browser styles. Applied. Cool. Yeah. That's actually something I sort of, uh, 
been wondering a little bit about lately. I've always like historically, I need some rule on the screen. It's always, oh, well, if that's either a bottom border or a top border or whatever the elements are. And uh, someone mentioned to me, like, um, you know, when do you choose to use like a border versus a horizontal rule? And I didn't really have a good answer. And in fact, all it did was get me thinking about like horizontal rules and thinking, well, you know what, maybe I maybe that is better in a lot of cases to just be able to explicitly sort of, you know, separate two things with an element. What's your heuristic for that? Like, when do you use one or does it carry any like semantic meaning that people? It does actually now it does. Um, So it's a horizontal rule is for a, a paragraph level thematic break. So the way I kind of think about this is if you're reading a novel and within the context of a chapter, all of a sudden the perspective shifts from one character to another. Sometimes you'll see like in the center of the page, like three dots sure, or like yeah. some squiggly some or something like that. To, yeah, there's, there's not, it's not like you've gone to a different chapter. It's not like you've gone like in a, in a, um, I feel like it's it, it's used a lot more in in fiction because you don't really have like headings like you do in like academic academic work. <laughs> um, so you know at at that point that's sort of what an HR is. Um, now if you're dealing with things that are sort of at the same uh, hierarchical level in the document, I think it it's totally cool to to throw in an HR if if you're shifting from like one sort of mental model to another or, or one context to another. I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And then you can choose whether you want to visually uh, present that or whether you only want to present it if CSS doesn't render because you've, you know, there are, there are certainly nicer ways to make, uh, make things look. And like I'm, I'm on my blog, I've got a, um, a certain style that I apply to a subsection header that is a little bit more, um, what the right what the right word is like a little bit more decorative sure. so it, it sort of feels like those um like those hrs in the fiction context where you're shifting focus but i've actually got some some text in there too um so like this this comes up on like my speaking engagements page where i've got like stuff that's upcoming and stuff that's in the past um i didn't want to have like this big gaudy heading for those sections so it actually says like in the past but it's it's all caps it's relatively small um with decent letter spacing so it's still readable but then there's some like filigree on the side or right? some, sure. some yeah, ornamentation yeah, yeah. to either side of it that makes it feel like visually it feels like a horizontal rule but there is actually some text there um that's conveyed um so it's kind of serving both functions right of yeah. of, of being a, a visual break um while at the same time conveying meaning just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Cloudinary. So if I had to describe Cloudinary myself, it's basically just the best way to store and serve images that I've ever seen. In the past, I used to use generic storage services like Amazon S3 to store and serve images, uh, but after switching to Cloudinary, I genuinely cannot believe I ever did this stuff any other way. Uh, so here's one example of how Cloudinary has made my life easier. Uh, so you probably know that typically images are the heaviest 
resource your users have to download when they visit your site, right? Usually way more than your JavaScript or CSS. So in the past, I would spend a lot of time tweaking settings and tools like Image Alpha and Image Optim to try and optimize my image files so they weren't as large. Uh, with Cloudinary, I can just upload the full resolution file without even really thinking about it. And then by just adding a parameter to the image URL that I get back, uh, when I go to serve it on my site, Cloudinary will automatically optimize that image as best as it can, usually resulting in file sizes that are actually lower than what I was seeing when trying to optimize the images by hand. Uh, this is even more useful for like user uploaded images because instead of trying to do some fancy automatic image optimization in a background job on my own server or something, I can just send those images directly to Cloudinary from the browser, uh, request the optimized version back by adding that URL parameter and bam, I've got an optimized image at a really small file size. Uh, so there's an enormous amount of other cool stuff that you can do through the URL based API. That's really just scratching the surface, but you can do stuff like request images at different sizes so you can serve smaller images on mobile devices so you're not wasting bandwidth. Uh, you can crop images to different dimensions. You can crop images using face detection, so just crop to the faces in an image. Uh, you can automatically add watermarks or text overlays or tons of different effects and stuff like that. It's a seriously impressive service. So Cloudinary has an amazing free plan where you can store 300,000 images and videos. Yeah, did I mention you can do all this crazy stuff, not just with images, but also with videos too. Uh, you get 10 gigabytes of storage and 20 gigabytes of monthly bandwidth on this free plan. Uh, so if you're not already using them, definitely head over to cloudinary.com and check it out. It really is one of my absolute favorite services that I use on my own projects. Thanks a ton to Cloudinary for sponsoring this episode. Back to the show. So one other question they have kind of while we're on the topic of all these different HTML5 elements, um, nav elements. So in the past, everyone used to do like a UL with a bunch of LIs with links in them. Yep. That's kind of how we did our navigation. Mm -hmm. And then when the HTML5 elements showed up, um, I think a lot of people kind of brought that forward still, but kind of just dumped that in a nav instead. So like it's still a mm -hmm. list of links, but we're wrapping in a nav to sort of say, yeah, this yep. is like the navigation section of the site. Um, what's what's your take on that approach these days because i've seen sort of conflicting information about whether we should still be using lists for that sort of thing or if it's okay to just put anchor tags as like direct children of a nav and you know that's totally kosher what's your approach so i think there's a lot of value in lists still and one of the reasons that i really like lists is that from an assistive technology standpoint it will actually read out to the user like here's a list with six items and so there's there's some context set before you start moving into that list gotcha. as to how many so you items you're know dealing how many with. There's going to be, yeah. Exactly. And so I, I really like it from that standpoint. Um, since we're on the topic of, of navigation, there's also, um, oh shoot, is it uh, ARIA current? I think it's ARIA hyphen current. Um, so you could say ARIA hyphen current equals page, and that will indicate that the link that you're, the link to the current page that you're on which is kind of cool. Um, there's also, I want to say there's a step value for it. There's like five different values for, for ARIA current. Um, so if you're in like a checkout process, that's a three-step checkout process, you can actually indicate um, for assistive tech what step in the process somebody's at oh, cool. because that information is being visually conveyed anyway. Um, so that's, a, that's a, a pretty cool thing as well. Nice. Yeah, so, okay, that, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, Another question about the nav stuff, which I've never been totally sure about, is 
should you use like a nav element just to directly wrap like the links sort of as tightly as possible or is it okay to sort of have like a navigation section on your site that most of the content and there's the links but maybe there's some supplementary content in some way you know what i mean like say you had something in a sidebar where there was a title and then a bunch of links and that title was an h3 or something um mm-hmm. should that h3 be in the nav element within the list inside of that or should it just be like a, a section or something with the title and then the nav just for the links um so the the heading can actually provide the accessible name for the the navigation so okay. if it's like main nav versus you know let's let's say it's you know some sites don't do a nested main nav and so they have like a main nav and then maybe there's a a section nav that's separate from that um you could actually have that heading level be the label for that subsection nav for instance so then you could have a a main nav when you focus into that first navigation and then you know section nav or something like that when you focus into the the second section so um it does make sense to include other elements like directly yeah cool and you can you can specifically tie that heading level to your um to your nav element by using aria labeled by um which is a, a it's an ID reference. So if you're if you're familiar in forms, when you associate a label with a, a field, you use the for attribute for equals whatever your your ID of your field is. Um, it's that same idea. So let's say your your heading level. Let's say this is you know subsection nav or something like that is is the the nav element itself, and you had an ID of subsection nav label or something like that as as the H3's ID. You could say that the nav was labeled by subsection nav label or something like that. Cool. Makes a lot of sense. Um, Okay, so I got one other thing that I'm wondering about, and um, then I'm just kind of curious about what I what I haven't mentioned that I should be worried about. Sort of the unknown unknowns that I think uh, a lot of us uh, could serve from learning about. But the the last one that I kind of run into a lot of time, where I kind of have a hard time making a decision, is whether it's okay to just like dump text content into a, a plain means nothing element like a span or a div um or if i should always be putting text content in like a p tag or something i think it's sort of a a case of last resort for for those meaningless semantic elements i think if there's if there's any world within which it makes sense to put something in a paragraph or a list or a definition list or something like that like by all means use the semantics first and then if there is absolutely no meaningful reason to do anything else, there's no value to be gained, then you could fall back to using those other elements. Um, I don't typically use divs at all for text themselves. I will sometimes use them for wrappers that I need for purely stylistic purposes. Sure, yeah. Um, and spans, for the most part, like, I would... When I was using spans more frequently, it would tend to be for things like a product name that maybe I want to, like, it doesn't really make sense to make it strong, right? Because it's not of strong importance. It's not really semantically meaningful. 
but, but again, maybe you I want to style it differently. Yeah. Maybe I need to style it differently for one reason or another. Um, so I used to do those in spans, but actually I've switched to, to doing those in B elements now because that's supposed to be for something that is stylistically offset from the text around it, but conveys okay. no additional semantic meaning. Okay. Um, so spans have pretty much been replaced by B elements for me in a lot of instances, um, which is a lot shorter to write to. Um, so yeah, I, I don't tend to, to use either for just text now. Gotcha. Um, it's, it's mainly for, uh, for either breaking things up in the case of divs for, uh, because it's a division, a generic division is what div stands for. Yeah. Um, or, you know, span. I don't think I've written a span in, I don't even know <laughs> how long. Like, Interesting. It, just, it, it just doesn't really seem relevant, uh, to me right now. Okay. So here's like a concrete example where I'm kind of curious what elements you'd use for different things. And it would be of course easier if I could just show this to you, but hopefully, um, I mean, I'm looking at Airbnb, which I think is probably yeah. something that a lot of people can kind of picture in their head. So they have these, um, little like listing previews where there's like an image at the top and then there's sort of like, um, sort of like some uppercase sort of eyebrow text above sort of like the listing where they, in this case, they're saying like the location, but some of them also have like a little badge next to it that says whether it's like a deluxe listing or something with like a mm-hmm. color, colored background. And then they sort of have like the the listing sort of title, you know, whatever mm-hmm. sort of the person decided to sort of put there. And then underneath that, there's like some more subtle text where it says like what the price is per night. So mm-hmm. in this case for starting with like the price per night section, would you put that in like a P tag or, or what would you do semantically for just like, you know, it's 14 characters of text kind of subtle underneath the title. And it's, it's wholly unto itself, right? It's not part of any additional uh, sort of meta information about the property. No, in this case, it's, it's just that text. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that it could be within. So if, if you were to take that as an overall block, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it could all exist maybe within a header element um, and then break it up within that header element into whatever the appropriate heading level is. And then you could do like a, a paragraph with potentially line breaks between it for the different things, um, just so that you're, you're sure that that stuff is enforced if styles were not to come in. And yep. then you could use B for each of the different pieces that doesn't make sense as kind of its own thing. Um, another way that you could do it potentially is, um, and again, it would depend on like the, the ordering of things. I'm not looking at it right in front of me because sure. I'm, I'm trying to put myself in, in your listeners, uh, mindset <laughs> as well. Um, but you could use something, you know, whenever I start to, to hear about like price per night and stuff like that, I, I immediately start to think about things like definition lists where you have a, a DL um, or description list, I guess they've been renamed. Uh, so description list has a, a DL element. And then within that, you can have any number of DT for the description term and then a, a DD for description data. Um, and so there are lots of permutations of the way that you can use DLs to define uh, multiple terms. I use them in the sidebar of my blog posts for like reading time and posted on and tags and stuff like that. And so you would give some, some sort of thing. So like you would say price, you know, as the DT maybe, and then, you know, let's say it's $150 per night uh, as the DD. Um, and you could say um, something like, uh, I don't know, designations, top, you know, top rental or something like that, or mm. like, 
best in class or whatever whatever the, I forget what the the thing you, thing was that you used for for that. Um, but like those those sorts of things feel like naturally sort of key value bits. Yeah. And and might make sense to use in that context, like location, and then you know Lynchburg, Virginia, or whatever it is, right? Yeah, yeah. I think the de- the definition list stuff or description list is, I think, an underused HTML element because I don't think Absolutely. I've I've very rarely used them. Like they don't they don't pop into my head as like the immediate solution for a lot of things. Why yeah. do you think that is? Why do you think it's sort of like a more of an unknown quantity in the uh, HTML world? I think we often just thought of them as things for glossaries. Um, and I mean, the, so the reality is that a lot of us learn, like have learned this on the job, right? Yeah. We all learn HTML on the job. You know, for some people learning HTML was never a priority for them because, you know, they, they had, you know, quote unquote, more important work to do. <laughs> um, you know, they, they had they had stuff that they valued more than learning HTML. Yeah. And so, you know, unless you take the time to actually understand HTML as a as a language, as a medium, um, it's very easy to overlook this in the interest of just, you know, doing whatever it is that you need to do to get it done. Oh, it looks fine. Let's move on. I mean, uh, there's a this is a whole other show into itself, but you know, forms are one of those areas that I think are just like rife with atrocity on the web. <laughs> um, you know, I look at things where something clearly should be a button, and uh, it is a div, right? And it's just like, why did you do that? And, and in a lot of cases, because oh, I was having problems styling it, so sure. I just made it into a div. Yeah. Um, and the reality is that you end up having to do so much work and throw so much code at that div to get it to do what a button would do for you naturally. Um, but you just didn't take the time. Like you'd rather take the time and, and throw all this extra code, extra JavaScript, CSS, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and markup in some cases to achieve you know, a, a fully accessible but very, very fragile button. Um, very fragile in that your JavaScript may not execute, your CSS may not download, it may just end up looking like, you know, text, <laughs> block level text yeah. in, in the worst scenario. Um, but you're happy to throw, you know, more and more code at it in the, the areas that you feel comfortable, but if you actually took the time to, to tuck into it and learn what the appropriate semantics would be and then learn what to do in CSS to make it act the way you wanted it to, um, you would end up with a, a perfectly accessible thing that takes a lot less code and has an awesome fallback that just works no matter what. Totally. Um, I mean, I remember the, their code's gone through umpteen revisions at this point, but I remember back in, oh gosh, I think 2013, I did an article that was um, looking at making the, the Tweet Composer more accessible. And um, I noticed that they were using an anchor element for their button to submit your, your tweet. And... I just out of curiosity swapped the anchor for a button element, left the class on it and everything like that. And it looked exactly the same. (laughs) And so I was like, why, why did you make it an anchor? Like it looks exactly the same, you know, applying the same styles to a button, but for some reason you did an anchor instead of a button. Totally. Um, so yeah. Um, I, yeah, that's a whole other thing. We could do a whole other show on forms <laughs> and on on fragility and uh, dependencies and all that sort of stuff. Because I don't know, for me, more dependencies, more problems. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nothing on the web is is guaranteed. 
Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Cool. Well, um, yeah, I think maybe that's a good place to start wrapping things up. Um, I was going to ask you a little bit about like any other uh, common mistakes people make, but you sort of touched on that a little bit with the button example. Maybe kind of one last chance. Are there any other sort of cardinal sins of HTML element uh, semantics that you see a lot of people making just out of ignorance that you think are quick I, fixes? I think the biggest one is like not using a label element to, to actually put your label text for fields in. Mm. Like that's that's the biggest one. It's such low hanging fruit. It's so easy to do. Use a label element, use the for attribute to associate it with the appropriate field um, and you're done. Like there's, there's so much great stuff that comes from that. You get um, a, a good accessible name for the field when the field is focused for people who rely on assistive technology uh, for radio controls and checkboxes it's awesome because it makes the the hit target so much bigger uh, for those because you don't actually have to click on the UI element yourself uh, you can click on the or, or itself rather you can click on the label and it will activate or deactivate the the checkbox control it'll also focus the field yeah. uh, when you click on the label so there's a lot of things that come for free um, from that. So I, I think, yeah, if people aren't using labels, that's the number one recommendation I always give is use a label and and associate it with the field appropriately. Nice. Um, one thing I run into actually with the label stuff um, that I always decide on a different solution for every time but say you're building a form where you know you have some like text inputs and it's pretty straightforward what to do with the label there right you've got like the label for the input and then you've got the input but then you get to a section where maybe there's like three checkboxes that have labels next to them but you also have sort of a title for the section where the checkboxes are and like field set and legend field set and legend so the thing that i found with field set and legend is that they're like impossible to style there's certain things about them that you just can't style um it's, it's gotten better. Uh, Legend used to have all of this, yeah, all of this crazy stuff that you couldn't do with it. It's, it's gotten better. It okay. used to be really horrible. Um, yeah, it used to be by default the Legend was blue in IE, like back in, <laughs> in IE6 and stuff like that. There was just like some weird things that, that were done. Um, but yeah, Fieldset and Legend have come a long way. They're, they're much easier to style these days than they used to be. Awesome. Cool. Well, I guess, you know, that's probably all I got for you for now. I think we've uh, put together a pretty uh, action-packed, content-filled episode here. So thank you so much for for giving me the time and uh, coming on the show. Yeah, happy to do it, Adam. Thanks for having me. Uh, What's the best place for people to sort of keep up with you and, you know, follow your writing or any of the things that you're working on online? Um, I'm relatively active on Twitter, and I'm at Aaron Gustafson there. Um, I do have a blog that I keep somewhat regularly uh but twitter's probably the the place that i'm i'm most frequently spotted awesome is there anything uh anything else that you want to plug or anything before we get going no i mean i'll, I'll do my employer solid and say if you haven't checked it out yet check out the the new versions of edge that we have out for uh for mac and windows they're all chromium based lots of good stuff coming out there and and if you have questions about building a pwa hit me up well, there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Aaron. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, they can be found at fullstackradio.com slash 118. Thanks to DigitalOcean and Cloudinary for sponsoring the podcast this week, and we'll see you next time.